And for the rest of you, I hope you have your Bibles with you in that if you didn't turn already to Matthew 7, from which Tara just read, that you will turn there now. It's page 812, if you're using the Bibles in the backs of the chairs. And if one of those Bibles would serve you or someone that you know, please take it and put it to good use. As we've already said, today is Renewal Sunday, where we seek to deliberately draw attention to the fact that we are constantly in need of God's renewing work in our lives. And God's constant renewing work in our church. God has something important for us all the time, every time we open up his word, and that is the case for us this morning and in a sort of special way today, perhaps, as we seek to renew our minds and refocus together. And in his providence, what we have before us today is what I consider to be the most harrowing and hard passage in Jesus' sermon. It is a very confrontational passage. The whole sermon brings great conviction to the hearts of its hearers and readers, but I think these three verses stand alone at the top of the list of the confrontational and difficult things that Jesus says in this sermon. In fact, it's just my opinion. I think these are the most hard and harrowing words in the entire New Testament, maybe the whole Bible. You've heard Tara read it for us already. Perhaps as she read it, you felt some uncomfortableness. You sensed the confrontational nature of, the, of its words. And as we take several minutes to examine and understand and apply this passage, I just want to start by exhorting you to lean in. God has this passage before us today on purpose, and in his providence, it's Renewal Sunday, a day that we seek to be renewed in our minds and in our hearts and as a whole church together. So lean in. This might be the most important sermon I ever preached, so may God help me as I do it. In the verses immediately previous to this passage, Jesus said that his kingdom people, his disciples, those who followed him, needed to watch out for false teaching. That's in verses 15 through 20. Calling them to exercise discernment as they followed him on his narrow way. He said in those verses, don't let false teaching tempt you away from my narrow path. The path that he describes in verses 12, excuse me, 13 and 14. He says in, then, in uh, the verses that follow, watch out for those who would tempt you to get off my narrow way. Watch out for those who look outwardly like my sheep of my pasture, but who inwardly are ferocious wolves. He says, don't mistake bad fruit for healthy fruit. Don't mistake wrong fruit for right fruit. Look closely at what you're hearing. Make sure you're actually following me and not something else that has nothing to do with me. What immediately follows that is our text for today, this explanation of what is in store for those who embrace and spread false teaching that follows the wide way to eternal destruction rather than the narrow way to eternal life. Jesus says in verse 22, that there will be many, many who say, Lord, Lord, many to whom he will say on that day, in verse 23, this declaration, I never knew you. 
depart from me. And so just as Jesus said in verse 13 that those who enter the narrow gate that leads to destruction, the wide gate that leads to destruction are many, also many are those whom Jesus will declare judgment and condemnation. It will be, verse 21, not everyone who calls him Lord that enters into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, verse 22, there will be many who call him Lord verbally whose eternity is not characterized as one in relationship with God. So here Jesus, as he has been over these last several verses, concluding the sermon, he's wrapping it up. And what he is saying in all four of these final sections that contain these pairs of contrasting people and images and ideas is that the only choice before everyone in light of who he is and what he has taught is to follow him. Because, he says, to not follow him is to go the way of destruction. It's to lead to eternal destruction. The first section in verses 13 and 14, he talks about two gates and two ways. Wide gate, narrow gate. Wide way, narrow way. Death or life. The second section, he speaks of this contrast of teaching and teachers pictured by two different kinds of fruit, two different kinds of trees. False teaching versus the truth. And then in the third section today, we have before us two confessions. Now, by confession, I don't mean it was me, I stole the candy bar. I'm talking about a confession more like the Westminster Confession or the London Baptist Confession. A confession that makes a definitive declaration and expresses it publicly. Usually in our corporate worship uh, gatherings, we engage in a time of confession where we say that we're sinners in need of grace. We did some of that today. But sometimes we also engage in a kind of confession where we are affirming things that we believe to be true, whether that be a historic confession. Sometimes we've pulled things out of our own doctrinal statement and just affirmed them together to confess these things that we believe, to declare them to be true about what we believe about God. It's that second kind of confession that we see here. And so two confessions. The first is the confession of the many hypocrites. The confession of the many hypocrites. Jesus says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? So here Jesus is in his third of four illustrations, just like he did in the last two and in the one coming up next at the end. Jesus is calling those around him, listening to him, physically with him at that moment, and then all of us who would read these words in the centuries and millennia to come, to not just hear what he's saying, or in our case, read it, but to respond to it. He has said that following him is a harder path, but that it's worth it at the end. He has said that the easier path leads to eternal destruction. He has said that there will be many who go that way because of the false teaching that will come and attempt to turn them from their narrow path. And now he's saying that there will tragically be many who think they're on the path but never were. 
He says there will be many who will not enter the kingdom of verse 21, even though they call him Lord, verse 22, and in verse 21. He says even these people will have prophesied, cast out demons, do many mighty works in his name. You're getting the picture as to why I say this is one of at least the scariest passages in the Bible. Notice how Jesus describes the confession of these hypocrites who claim to be his followers, but evidently never were based on what he says to them in verse 23. Look at what he says in verse 22, just this list of three things. First of all, they prophesy, and, and that word here shouldn't be understood only to mean the kind of prophecy where you predict something. Prophecy can also mean preaching, proclaiming the word. It can certainly mean predicting things, but taking it only that way is too simplistic. It's not the only thing the word means. And so what Jesus is saying here is that there will be people who proclaim, who preach the word of God in his name, whose confession is hypocritical because he will say to them, I never knew you. Boy, is this a harrowing word for Brian and me and for anyone who preaches the word. You can preach a solid expositional sermon and not be a kingdom resident. You can lead a small group discussion. You can teach the children's classes. You can facilitate a men's Bible study or a women's Bible study and not have a confession that is true. He also speaks of those who cast out demons in his name. Notice, he is not talking about charlatans faking it. He's not saying those who pretend to cast out demons. He's, at least in the language given to us, it evidently seems he's talking about actual exorcisms that have taken place. So it turns out you can also perform an exorcism and not be a genuine follower of Jesus. And then he finally says that there will be some who say that they did many mighty works in his name. And in the original language, the wording of this phrase indicates that he's referring to miracles. Perhaps also exorcisms falls into that category, but maybe healings and other kinds of miraculous acts done supposedly in the name of Jesus. But their confessions will have been hypocritical. Friends, Jesus is saying something very startling here, isn't he? Many will have a kind of genuine profession in that they're not lying. There's no textual reason to believe Jesus is talking about people who are just pretending to do this stuff. They're just making this stuff up. But there are many whose confession that seems genuine will simultaneously not be genuine because they will not be those who enter into the kingdom of heaven. They're not actually believers. They're not actually followers of Jesus. But they are actually professing believers, confessing believers. They are those who would hold to various important doctrines there are those who have prophesied, who have executed an exorcism, who have performed miraculous feats of spiritual power. But Jesus says, nonetheless, that theirs will have been a confession without an end in the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. Why? 
Because according to Jesus, something massively important and maybe massively shocking is missing. The second half of verse 21. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying, calling me Lord is not enough to meet the requirement for kingdom entrance. You must also do the will of my Father. Does that shock you a little bit? Does it make you squirm a little bit? Make you uncomfortable? Good. Jesus didn't come to make us comfortable. Jesus' kingdom is a place that ends in eternal rest, but it starts off at the narrow gate and goes down the narrow way. So comfort isn't Jesus' goal here. He's giving hard words of warning and exhortation and in a display of his authority as the king. And he says that what you do matters regarding your kingdom residency. And that is hard for us who are firmly committed, as we should be, to the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone. We know that it's not by works that we're saved. It's by grace. And it's not through our works. It's through faith. Amen. But Jesus explicitly says here that the one who does the will of my Father are the ones who enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't get around it. It's stated explicitly, plainly, and in black and white. So what does he mean? Friends, it's the same thing he meant when he said in verse 12, do to others what you wish they would do to you. This is the law and the prophets. This is how you sum up what God has revealed in his word about how we should live. And it's the same thing he meant in chapter 6, verse 10, when he said that we should pray that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth when it is in heaven commanded his disciples to pray in this way. It's also the same thing he meant in verse 48 of chapter 5 when he said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's also the same thing he meant when he said in verse 20 of chapter 5, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Same kind of enter into the kingdom of heaven language there as there is in chapter 7 before us this morning, isn't there? And so doing the will of Jesus' Father to the extent that kingdom entrance is granted means, listen closely, total surrender to the king. Jesus says to his disciples and to all listening to him in this day when he teaches these things, you think you're righteous enough to enter the kingdom? You're not! You want to enter the kingdom? You need to have a commitment to righteousness that goes beyond even the Pharisees. And then we're all left wondering, well, how in the world can this happen? I can't act more righteously than a Pharisee. I certainly can't achieve total surrender to the king because my heart is sinful. So this sounds like really bad news. It turns out, even with a verbal profession and even a life that is characterized by devotion and ministry in the name of Jesus, unless I'm someone who's characterized by doing the will of the Father in this total, whole life, surrender way, my profession is hypocritical. And that's the point of the second of our two confessions. 
The second confession is the confession of the one Lord. When he says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The reason I'm calling this the second of two confessions is this. In the original language, Matthew uses a word here. I'm going to put it up for you just so you can see it. A word, homologeo in Greek. And you know what it means? when The, the word that Matthew gives here, I will declare to them, is the word homologeo. And it means to confess or profess or declare in the same way that there are those who would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I wish more modern translations would have gotten this across more clearly in their versions because what Jesus is doing here is saying something very intentionally. He's saying these hypocrites will confess, profess, declare to be mine and to be serving me, but then I will confess, declare, profess to them that they aren't. These people confess that I am their Lord, but I confess I don't even know them. What a hard word. And because of the fact that they are not in the category of the one who does the will of my Father, this one Lord, the one whom they call Lord, professes that he doesn't even know them. He even even calls them workers of lawlessness. You say you're the ones who do the will of my Father. You're not the ones who do the will of my Father. I never knew you. You are a worker of lawlessness. These are terrifying and heartbreaking words. But they are just words. Because Jesus is the one who's saying them. And he has the authority to determine who's in and who's out. And he has already said in the sermon, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He's used to telling us who's in charge. He's showing it again. And he's saying... You don't get into the kingdom of heaven unless you are someone who does the will of my Father. Calling me Lord with your mouth isn't enough. Doing ministry stuff in my name isn't enough. Something more, something deeper is needed. A holistic, total, radical, and all-encompassing surrender to the will of the Father no matter what it takes on the narrow way, through the narrow gate, forever. And so now, I'd like to give you three lessons that this text teaches us. One of them is a do, and the other two are don'ts. I'm sorry, I said that backwards. One of them's a don't, the other two are do's, whatever. Don't assume kingdom residency based simply on what you say. According to Jesus, turns out you can say that you're someone who calls Jesus Lord, literally verbalizing the word Lord in connection to him, but not actually be someone to whom he is really Lord. Because not everyone who says to me Lord will enter the kingdom. So don't assume that just because you call him Lord, refer to him as God, believe that he exists, and even publicly profess allegiance to him, that you're his. Not everyone who says, many will say, and even many will prophesy. At least three times here, Jesus is talking about saying things. Rather, the second lesson 
is this. Do be assured of kingdom residency based on what you do. Now, did the hair on the back of your neck just go up a little bit? I said it that way on purpose because it is related to what the text is saying, but it feels a little tricky, doesn't it? Because the ultimate reason for assurance of kingdom residency is not what we have done. But in the context of this passage, I hope you see what I'm saying. According to Jesus, entrance into the kingdom and therefore assurance of whether or not you're in the kingdom is very much related to fruit. And so, my friends, no, it is not that your works are the basis for your assurance, just like it's not that your works are the basis of your salvation. But look at what Jesus is saying. If you just flip the phrase around a little bit in verse 21, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so here's the key. Listen closely. Look up here if you need to. Your works do not earn kingdom residency status, but they do confirm it. You see the difference there? Here's what I mean. Brothers and sisters, let me state unequivocally, it is purely by mercy and grace that anyone is brought in to the kingdom through faith. Amen. And the whole Bible is clear about that. But the whole Bible is also clear that if you are truly in the kingdom, works will follow. Fruit will be healthy. It will be growing. You will be changing. You will be different. You will be transformed. And it'll show. It'll be obvious in the way that you live. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 for just a moment here. We studied this passage a little while ago in our series in 2 Peter. Let's look at it again. 2 Peter 1. Read along with me what the Apostle Peter says in verses 5 and following to verse 11. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail, fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm not going to go back and say everything I said about that back when I preached it. You're welcome to look back at that if that would be helpful to you. But essentially what Peter is saying here is six things. Number one, pursuing growth in godliness is a command that you must obey. Number two, pursuing growth will lead to fruit. Number three, if you're not growing, you might not be a Christian at all, or you might have lost sight of the gospel and need to be renewed. Number four, your growth in godliness will help you in your assurance of being in the faith. Number five, your growth will be a protection from falling away. And number six, Peter says, your growth's final conclusion will be entrance into the kingdom of God. 
And so according to the Apostle Peter, pursuing growth in godliness very much matters when it comes to kingdom residency. Perhaps you've thought of this one. Let's turn also to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, it's very near, very near 2 Peter, just a, a couple of, few pages back. James chapter 2, look at what verses 14 through 18 say. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith, or you may have a translation that says, can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. Skip down to verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. A body that doesn't have a spirit in it is not alive. It's a husk. It's a shell. In the same way, faith that doesn't have works coming out of it is not alive. It's not faith at all. It's exactly the kind of thing Jesus is talking about. And oh, my friends, we who consider ourselves as we should to be reformed in our theology need to be very careful not to minimize or, God forbid, forsake what the Bible teaches about the importance of striving for good works as evidence of our faith in Jesus. You ought to be reformed in your theology. You ought to affirm and even bleed to hold to the fact that salvation is purely by grace through faith. And also, if there is no works, what kind of faith is that? If your works don't match up with kingdom life, with the kingdom life that Jesus is calling for in his sermon, then you ought to squirm when you read these words. You ought to be concerned because Jesus explicitly says in black and white that there are going to be people who think they're in but aren't. People who claim residency because of their confession of Jesus as Lord but aren't. And so, friends, listen, this isn't a church where we try to scare people every week into making a profession of faith. If you've been here long at all, you know that. But this is a church where we unashamedly preach the text of Scripture. And this is clearly saying in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, that there will be many on that day, which means the day of judgment, that give their best shot at claiming, I'm part of the kingdom. I'm part of the kingdom. I confess Jesus as Lord. I did all kinds of things for him. And Jesus says, I never knew you. why I think it's the scariest and most difficult passage in the New Testament. It is harrowing and hard stuff. Harrowing because it means that there may be some of us in this very room who are not displaying good, healthy kingdom fruit and therefore might not be Christians at all. And it's hard because it also doesn't fit nicely and neatly into our theological systems and doctrinal statements. Yeah, I'm going to find this on a wall decoration at Hobby Lobby. Can you imagine such a thing? Put that up in your kitchen. There's a line from a movie 
Batman Begins that actually came to mind when I read this passage where the titular character, Batman, spoiler, Bruce Wayne, says, it's not who I am underneath, but what I do that defines me. It's kind of the theme of the whole movie. And it sounds like a good sentiment. And in some ways it really is. It's also kind of confusing in light of what the Bible actually teaches, what is the truth. Because according to what Jesus is saying throughout this entire sermon, but certainly in our text today, it really is kind of who you are underneath and not just what you do that defines you. But it is also what you do that defines you or at least gives evidence of who you are underneath. But it's also not about what you do as much as who you are underneath, but who you are underneath is mainly about what someone else has done for you. You see, it's all kinds of confusing. By the way, that's why we shouldn't let Hollywood movies shape our thinking, okay? But I bring this up because I think it's illustrative for us regarding how complex and challenging these words of Jesus are. In our human minds, we want it to be something pithy like from Batman Begins. And we hear that line and it kind of resonates from us. Yeah, it's not who I am underneath, but what I do that defines me. Yeah, but then we think about it in terms of what Jesus is actually saying. We go, well, it's kind of right, but it's also kind of wrong. It does make an important point, but I've got to be careful with that. I don't take it too far because this is also true and that's also true. And so the point I'm making, my friends, is that Jesus is hard to follow and his path is narrow and the gate is narrow. It's not easy to just boil him down to a pithy phrase from a movie about Batman. We have to think really carefully about what we believe regarding these kingdom matters because according to this passage... If we're not careful, if we don't take this seriously, if we don't dig into this and get on our faces before God in prayer in light of a passage like this, some of us in this very room could be on our way to hell thinking that we're on the kingdom path because we've confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. We've kept his rules. We've served him. But not actually bearing real fruit, the kind of fruit that Jesus talks about in his sermon. Therefore, showing that we were never part of the kingdom in the first place. R.T. France says it this way. Those who can do no more than simply keep the rules, however conscientiously, haven't even started as far as the kingdom of heaven is concerned. I put John Stott's name there, but it's actually R.T. France. Because even if you are religiously active, you can be spiritually dead. Great reformer John Calvin said that these, the kinds of people Jesus is talking about here are people that Jesus never reckoned to be among his people, even at the time when they boasted that they were the pillars of the church. Remember, Jesus calls these people who were not actually part of the kingdom, even though they thought they were, workers of lawlessness. How indignant that must make them feel. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Easy. Worker of lawlessness. I've been called a lot of things, but not a rule breaker. No way. Not me. But my friends, mere following the rules is far easier than actually living out your kingdom status with fruit that flows out of a life that has been truly transformed by the miraculous work of Jesus in the gospel. You see, true kingdom people, Jesus is saying, live out 
the will of the Father, the will that Jesus preached about through this entire sermon, because true kingdom people, listen carefully, are transformed from the inside out. They don't just go through the motions. They don't just maintain their religiosity through whatever rigmarole they have set up in their life. No, they get sweaty and dirty and they hurt and they get tired and they work at cultivating the kind of fruit that Peter is talking about in 2 Peter 1 and the kind of fruit that Jesus has been talking about throughout this whole sermon because of what has already happened to them on the inside. It's an inside-out issue. It's not just about, Jesus says in the sermon, it's not just about not technically ever having murdered someone. It's about whether or not you really do love them. It's not just about whether or not you've technically, physically had an adulterous relationship with someone. It's about what is the issue with lust in your heart. It's not just about what you say publicly about other people. It's about what you're judging about them in your minds. It's not just about going through the actions of prayer, as important as that is. It's about what's going on in your heart that's motivating those prayers. And so, my friends, this is much harder than simply following some rules. It's about a heart transformation that leads to real, living, alive, growing, developing, changing fruit. Now, all of that is true. You can be assured of your kingdom residency based on what you do with all the things that I just said and all those caveats in there. That's true. We need to hold, however, two truths in tension, as is so often the case in the Christian life. On the one hand, you've got everything I just said about how Jesus regards good fruit as vital for entrance into his kingdom, fruit that displays doing the will of the Father, the kinds of fruit Peter talks about in 2 Peter 1. On the other hand, You've got this elephant in the room staring us all in the face with a really long name. And his name is, we can't do those things by our own strength or power because we're unhealthy trees by nature. Right? And so here's the third lesson for us in this passage. Do be assured of kingdom residency because of whom you know. Really, you got to just take that phrase alongside the, the second lesson that I gave. Uh, be assured of kingdom residency based on what you do because of whom you know. I didn't want to state that third one until the second one had a chance to really hit home. But now you've got the whole thing. You've probably heard an iteration of an, of an adage about it not being how hard you work or what, what good job you do, but it's about who you know, kind of stated in a, in a negative way, referring to nepotism or favoritism or some, some sort of complaint about someone who seems to schmooze their way to the top of their profession or their local office. But I tell you what, my friends, when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, it is very much about whom you know. What is it that Jesus says to the ones that he banishes from his presence in verse 23 by saying, depart from me? What is it that he says to them? I never knew you. And so, my friends, I think we can conclude that apparently doing the will of the Father and knowing Jesus go hand in hand. Because he's saying both things in the same small section. You want in the kingdom? Do my Father's will. You think you're in because of your so-called confession? 
don't. It does no good unless you know me. What did Jesus say in John chapter 6, verse 40? I have it on the screens for you. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. A big part of the will of the Father is knowing and believing in Jesus. And so apparently there are two kinds of belief. There's a hypocritical belief and a belief that is truly genuine. The belief of the hypocrites expressed in a profession of Jesus as Lord, but that is different than the belief that Jesus is talking about in John 6. And so I think we must conclude that truly genuine belief is connected to actually knowing Jesus. I never knew you, Jesus says. And this word for knowing is so much more than just a kind of knowledge that you have about sports or about cooking or about how to fix your car. It's so much more than just a database of facts. It's the kind of knowing that spouses have for each other. It's the kind of knowing that parents have of their children. It's intimate. It's deep. It's relational. It's experiential. That's what the word means. That's the kind of knowing that Jesus is talking about. I never knew you doesn't mean he's never heard of you. Jesus knows everything. I never had a relationship with you. And so, my friends, entrance into the kingdom is based on what you do because of whom you know. And when you truly know Jesus, you will do the will of the Father. Because when you know Jesus truly, personally, intimately, relationally, you will not be able to help being transformed from the inside out because what will happen is you will have met Jesus and the Holy Spirit will take over and you will become a new creation. So that's the connection between the two. And friends, think about it. Who is the only one about whom it could ever truly and fully be said, one who does the will of the Father. It's Jesus. He alone always did the Father's will without even a millisecond's lapse. And through faith in Jesus, the Bible teaches us, you will actually be given credit for his perfect righteousness, the righteousness that's required for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And so, this passage sounds like a lot of bad news, and it ought to be concerning to you, depending on what's going on in your heart, but there's good news in this passage too, because even though on our own we are a bunch of diseased trees, dead trees, through faith in the one whom has only ever borne good fruit, just to keep that analogy going, you can actually have perfect righteousness. You can have a confession that is genuine. You can confess that your account has a positive balance rather than negative when it comes to measuring whether or not you're someone who's in. And so both are true, my friends. If you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus has been talking about this his whole sermon, and it's what his whole ministry is about, being in the kingdom of heaven. 
Matthew's constantly on about it in his book. If, if you want to be part of the kingdom of God, you're going to have to be someone who does the will of the Father. And the only way to get credit, the only way to be characterized that way, is to accept the righteousness that Jesus offers through his atoning sacrifice on the cross and his triumph at the empty tomb. After that, the proof, the confirmation, the evidence of your kingdom residency is your fruit. And so my friends, please, please think about this. Does your life look like the life of a person who has been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? Or do you just look like everyone else? Busy as a bee with the things of this world, neglecting the work of the kingdom, lacking a passion for a relationship with Jesus, working hard at ticking those religious boxes, but on a deeper examination, someone who is characterized as a diseased tree bearing no fruit at all or dying fruit rather than a vibrant living tree bearing good fruit. My friends, according to Jesus himself, entrance into and assurance of kingdom residency in his kingdom has everything to do with what you do because of whom you know. And so you need a relationship with Jesus. Not just factual data about him in order to be someone who does the will of the Father. And once you know him, you will, you will be transformed into someone who bears fruit and does the Father's will. I would direct your attention to the application questions on our worship guide for this week as further thought for you. Ask yourself, am I someone who merely knows facts about Jesus but has no relationship with him? And what will the relationship between the fruit that I'm bearing and the confession that I make about what I believe about Jesus lead me to do? In other words, what might need to change in my life? And then lastly, on this Renewal Sunday, let us consider together how this passage confronts our church about the need of renewal, about the need for fruit, about the need for real spiritual life where there may be none at all in some places. Oh, my dear Redeemer Bible Church member, family, we must desperately beg God to do a reviving and renewing work in our hearts and in our whole church. May there be no one here whose confession is hypocritical. May all of us be doing the will of the Father because of whom we know, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, please renew us. Make us grow. You are the vine. We are the branches. If there is anyone here who is spiritually dead, please bring them to life. Bring fruit to trees that are not bearing fruit. Bring salvation to those who need it. Bring growth to those who are stagnant or struggling. Lord, in your word, you promise that as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and as they do not return without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is your word that goes out from your mouth. It will not return empty, but will accomplish what you desire and achieve the purpose for which you sent it. And Lord, as a 
result, you promise that we will go out in joy and be led forth in peace, and the mountains and hills will burst into song, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. And instead of thorn bushes, there will be juniper trees, and instead of briars, the myrtle tree will grow. Lord, work this growth in us as individuals, as families, and as an entire local church through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Let's take a few moments, meditate, continue in prayer in the quietness of our own hearts for just a few more minutes.